0: Okay, thank you. Okay. So again, this um, again this path of uh, embodied practice, uh, whole day of that today. A year ago, when we taught, I had a kind of a sudden inspiration, and I had a model of seven steps of embodied awakening, which just came to me in the morning. And we were thinking, oh, this could design a a several-year curriculum, which would be quite wonderful and beautiful and work with all sorts of different uh, modalities. And for the sake of simplicity, I condensed all of it to three (laughs) for this morning. But it it can give a good sense of the nature of embodied practice, particularly from uh, the standpoint of uh, meditation, of developing mindfulness, wisdom, compassion, and so forth, and really extend into the dance component. So the, the three phases that I thought of for our practice uh, are these. First, uh, connect with embodied awareness. And I'll say more about each of these. The second is really explore the body through the practice of embodied awareness. Actually, there are gonna be four phases, sorry. (laughs) The third is grounded in the body, open up to deeper awareness open up to one's deeper being. And the fourth is, bring it out into the world. So it's simple in that sense. First, have to connect with the body. Secondly, explore it, go into depth, and so forth. Thirdly, grounded in the body, use that as a basis for deepening in love and wisdom and compassion. And then fourthly, bring it out into the world. So certain commonsensical uh, structures. So I'll say a little bit about each of those. Again, for many of us, we've been connecting with the body for some time. Uh, but we many of us, we had to first make that connection. And I gave some of my own personal history uh, yesterday, that sense of being very active with the body but not really connected in terms of awareness. And so we connect in various ways to be Uh, aware, to have that embodied awareness, relatively free at times of this pervasive thinking process. That, again, is very valuable in its own right. We wouldn't have uh, got here without it in multiple ways, you know, whether the planning process or the thinking process that helped design cars and so forth. So it's clearly very crucial. But there is a point, point. I think we've had that happen uh, culturally in terms of cultural evolution, where the thinking process gets really disconnected from the body, from the emotions, you know, and sometimes a lot from even from the consequences of our action. And we're pointing towards that integration of heart, body, and mind is not just significant personally, but also very much culturally. And so we've made that uh, connection, we've started to make uh, that connection of being able to be with the body in meditation, in dance, with uh, the discursive thinking being more minimized and being more in the background. Um, you know, The cultural condition is well expressed by, there's a line from a short story by James Joyce, some of you know, from his book called Dubliners, where uh, in one of the stories it said, Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and that expresses the cultural conditioning, you know, which is, I'm sure, there uh, to a large extent in Colombia as well. I imagine it's not. It's um, increasingly worldwide, right? increasingly worldwide uh, conditioning. And so we connect with the body. And then part of that also... Is to see what uh, blocks body awareness, what gets in the way of our being able to really have that embodied awareness. What gets in the way in the meditation? What gets away in the dan- uh, what gets in the way in the dance? You know, what what uh, what sort of interferes with that embodied awareness? This is part of this first um, step, uh, this first process of really connecting with the body. We partly connect, but we partly also see why it's sometimes difficult, or what gets in the way. And we could say, here are some things which get in the way. Um, Our automatic thinking, just the uh, overly active nature of our thinking at times. You know, that we, we, and this is something that we definitely work on in meditation, where we, develop the capacity to be more present with whatever's happening. We learn how to cut through repetitive thinking in all sorts of ways. You know, and uh, again, we can bring that out into the dance. We also, more, with more clarity, can see our habitual thinking. We can see the habits and processes. We can, for example, we can see in terms of the body, Uh, how, at times, there is self-image, which comes up, right? Oh, that was a cool move, or whatever. You know, whatever comes up. We can see how there might be self-image, either thinking this is cool, or sometimes um, this um, negative self-image about our bodies, which can really get in the way of embodied awareness, get in the way of expression. We, We were talking on the way over, this morning, I was saying that virtually every person I talked to had the experience of, a, of being a teenager and thinking that there were significant problems with one's body. And probably more intense for women, for girls, right? More intense, but I certainly had that experience. You know, and mine were maybe on the minor level, I thought my ears were too big, my <laughs> neck was too long, and my feet were too big, and so as a teenager, I regularly, um, when asked about the size of my feet, uh, gave a, a smaller shoe size <laughs> than was actual, you know. And I've told this story once uh, on a retreat where we we had a I sometimes teach retreats on transforming the judgmental mind, which is quite related to all this, and. In the retreat area, people are in silence and they leave notes. And I got several notes saying, I think your feet are just fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, it hasn't been a huge issue since I was a teenager, but I can notice there's some residue even now, you know. When I, when I look at the, you know, it's not heavy, but I notice there's a little bit of residue about my feet especially. Anyway. <laughs> we, and we all have some version of that don't we I'm, uh, everyone I've talked to reports that so you know that's part of what we what we find that's part of what makes it harder sometimes to connect with this embodied awareness you know and for some of us there can also be at times trauma connected with the body that can make connecting with awareness hard or or impossible because it it there's material there that we need to work through where we can't really be aware of the body because we connect with the residue of um, internalized sense of threat, which hasn't been worked through. So there are a lot of areas where, where we can see what blocks that body awareness. But we keep on practicing. Some of these areas we need to work in a focused way. Um, Carly, who was here uh, yesterday, she does uh, workshops, uh, I think, on, um, particularly on eating and related to the body. There's right? a lot of, lot of issues for a significant number of people, so there's work that we can do. A second level, not totally connect, disconnected from the first, is what I call exploring the body. And this is where we um, connect further our sense of embodied practice with wisdom and compassion. One area that we might work with as we deepen embodied awareness is we begin to see how do I balance my mind, my heart, and my body, right? And we may, how do I integrate these? How do they connect? And for some of us, we may want to develop more in the heart or develop more of the wisdom area or develop more of the embodiment area. You know, that... You know, I've been at uh, trainings related to this where we each, where people sort of reported of those three areas: where are you most developed? Where do you need development? Some people can be extremely embodied, and it can be a little bit disconnected from the mind, or even from the heart, right? And vice versa. So as we deepen, we have that that balancing process, and it may take more focused work to open up the heart or to develop the wisdom. From the perspective of wisdom, which is an important emphasis of, of um, meditation, we we will start to deconstruct the usually solid sense of the body. And we see come to see the body more as this dynamic flow, as we did by working with the the uh, sense of the elements, or the sense of the flow of sensations in the body. And, you know, that the self-image kind of unifies the body almost with a concept, and we get beneath that. We get beneath the self-images, we get beneath this ordinary, solid, I think conceptually mediated sense of the body. And we get more to the lived experience of the body, which often means just being aware of this dynamic flow of experience, and the meditation can open to that, the dance can open to that. Some of the particular meditations, like being with the elements, being with the flow of sensations, really let it, just letting the mindfulness just track uh, whatever is there. Noticing impermanence, especially, noticing impermanence and change, a huge part of cultivating wisdom in relation to the body, noticing the continual change that's there, and we can notice that internally with our own bodies, and can notice it outwardly. And again, our usual way of being with the world is deeply mediated by concepts which tend to freeze things, right? We don't see the change. You know, we either, okay, that's a tree, right? Tree. Uh-huh. And we don't really go into the lived experience of being with the tree, you know, at the level of our own sensations, or touching it, or seeing, seeing the changes we notice when, we, when there's some stuckness in our experience of the body. When do I have a kind of uh, contraction in the body? Maybe it could be, around, could be around self-image, could be around, I don't like this. what is happening in the body, and we might get a little bit fixed on that. And again, there's an important role, as we talked about yesterday, for taking care of oneself, but there is also a lot of uh, conditioning to make it hard to be with the unpleasant experiences, as we were talking about yesterday. So part of the training that can be very valuable is just to sit. Oh, this is what it's like to have very pleasant experiences in my body. Let me just be with that without trying to do anything with it. Oh, this is the presence of the unpleasant in the body. Let me be with that. Let me just hang out with that. Notice where, there's some resistance, and it can be tremendous learning in meditation. Mm. Can, uh,
1: I, can I speak to that for a yeah,
0: moment? Yeah, put on your mic. I think
1: I did. Hello. Okay. Yeah. Um, I just want to name, because I know a lot of women have this, is that for uh, a, number, a period of years I've had insomnia on and off. And I would lie in bed, and at first I'd be kind of calm and okay, and then I'd start to get agitated and so the whole experience was not only was I not sleeping, but then I was agitated that I was not sleeping, and that would kind of build, and then the whole thing would be unpleasant. And I had, all, I'm going to be tired in the morning, and I'm not getting what I need, and all this story would kind of pile on and make the whole situation worse. And um, what's really transformed for me, from uh, just deepening and deepening over the years, my Uh, Body presence meditation is for example last night. I ate something that upset my stomach and I was in bed and I woke up probably Gosh, I don't know five or six times through the night So I went to bed with plenty of time to get plenty of sleep but then then I just woke up over and over and over again and um, That's kind of all that happened there was no agitation like I would just say oh my stomach is upset. What can I do to be with that? Maybe I need to go to the bathroom. Maybe I need to massage my belly. Um, Maybe I just need to acknowledge that, that. And I just kept being that way. So I was still up a good portion of the night, but I wasn't suffering with it. I was just being with it. And that actually allowed me to still rest. So even though I was awake, I was still in a restful state. And so, and all, and I, what I trust now is that I'll have the energy that I need in the tomorrow morning, and that in that restful state, that actually happens. And so, um, being willing to just be present with the physical challenge, tend to it, and yet stay relaxed and not resist, and start to create layers of stories and agitation that then snowballs into a much more unpleasant evening. So. Yes.
0: So this is really about the working with the mind in relationship to the body. Really mind and heart, but particularly noticing our attitudes, our really relation to the body, and when we have thoughts, ideas that get in the way. And what uh, Heather was talking about particularly relates to probably my most favorite teaching, and one that is very quickly gets right to the heart, of um, really the wisdom teachings. It's a teaching called the teaching of the two arrows. Mm-hmm. How many of you know this teaching? Yeah. And this is, it's a, it's a teaching from the Buddha. And it goes like this. The Buddha was talking to a group of practitioners and he asked them, everyone experiences the unpleasant. What differentiates a practitioner from a non-practitioner? And no one answered him, so he answered his own question, which was often a way that he taught. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, everyone has some degree of unpleasant experiences. We might say that this is when the body has unpleasant sensations, we can have unpleasant emotions, difficult emotions. We can have difficult interactions with people. We can be treated unfairly. All these things can happen. Everyone has those experiences, some more than others. And he said, that's like being shot by an arrow. It's the arrow of the unpleasant. And we sometimes are shot by this arrow. He called that the first arrow. He says, we're all sometimes shot by the first arrow. He said, in that there's no distinction between a practitioner and a non-practitioner. But what differentiates the practitioner from the non-practitioner is how there is either a reaction or a response to the presence of the first arrow. He said, a non-practitioner will tend to react and, as it were, do things which are like shooting a second arrow as if that would help. And so, concretely, that means when there is something difficult happening in the body, unpleasant sensations in the body, There'll be mm-hmm. contraction, there'll be tension, you know. There'll be, as Heather was saying, there'll be mental comments, there'll be agitation. There will be could be all sorts of things. Go into difficult emotions or blaming. blaming others, blaming ourselves. I should have done this, I shouldn't have eaten that, I shouldn't have eaten so late. Mm-hmm. Whatever it might be. And that's he said, is, is um, like shooting the second arrow where we can have a difficult interaction. Uh, some, someone said something mean to me, and instantly I react back and I shoot a second arrow at that person, right? And similarly, I'm treated unfairly and I retaliate, or something like that. That is all shooting the second arrow. And what the teaching is, is that part of the training is to learn to be with the first arrow without shooting the second arrow. Very a very profound teaching and it requires some training because our typical tendency when the first arrow is there is to shoot the second arrow when we're not aware, when we're not conscious. And so exactly like Heather's story or it could be uh, interestingly one of the first applications of mindfulness practice was for people with chronic pain in medical settings because doctors would say as much as 80% or 90% of what they experience as pain is them shooting the second arrow. It's the tensing, right? And if they can just be with the 20%, it's hard, right? Not necessarily easy, but it's there. But think of the amount of pain that can be reduced. That's from learning simply to be with what's there without shooting the second arrow. Let me, let, me, let me just finish it and we see if there's a, a question. Um, and so, it could be understood at the level of the body, it could be understood interpersonally, right? Can I learn to be with what's difficult with another person, with my own emotions? Something difficult happens to me. Do I go instantly into self-judgment, blame, funk, depression, whatever? Or is there another way to be with it in which I don't shoot the second arrow? or I interpret actually the work of Gandhi and King and the whole field of nonviolence as in that larger sphere, learning not to shoot the second arrow mm-hmm. It's the same thing it 's the same teaching right We have received oppression and violence. We will not continue the cycles of oppression and violence by retaliating, but we will still be very firm in our response, right, and that all of this is not about passivity right? it's about responding but responding in a different way so. I'm glad I got that teaching to you. Because it's, it's in the, it, get, this is actually uh, a very quick way of, of, of giving the core of the teaching of the Four Noble Truths from the Buddha. And it really is very practical in that way. And so we want to study when we start shooting the second arrow and see if we can relax. And that, can, that happens in part at the level of the body. So we practice there. We also, I think, open up the heart in relation to the body, and we'll have some practices that we were talking on the way, just that practices of care and love for one's own body, very fundamental in light of what we were saying earlier. Right? And We were talking how the most common word at the end of yesterday was gratitude. Right? And I think we also want to cultivate that sense of care and gratitude and kindness towards our own bodies, which can be an ongoing practice. It's not like, okay, did that one, check. End of the day, right? Okay, no more need for kindness and gratitude to my body. Okay. It's, it's ongoing, right? So, so that's, that's the second phase of really exploring, going more deeply, balancing mind and heart and body. So you can see that this is a longer term curriculum, right? It's not, not gonna complete it by the end of the day. But we'll open, we're opening it up further, that's our hope. And then thirdly, there can be a sense of grounding uh, in the body and helping that bring one to the depth. You know, I think for us to go more deeply, it has to be embodied. That's what I've found in, in all the practices we do when we teach loving kindness. We especially try to teach it in a way that's embodied when we teach deeper aspects of wisdom awareness, very crucial to have in embodied. The body. There's a beautiful book, which I'll just mention, by Reginald Ray called Touching Enlightenment, Finding Realization in the Body. And he actually makes a lot of comments about how contemporary Buddhist practitioners often are disembodied and how it distorts the whole process. It's a very interesting book. Uh, Reginald Ray. He's a teacher in Colorado. He, he's been doing... He has, a, he has actually CDs on that you can probably find in the bookstore. He has a whole training program, quite, quite elaborate.
2: The name of
0: Touching Enlightenment. There's a beautiful poem by Rilke which really summarizes this. You who let yourselves feel... Enter the breathing that is more than your own. Let it brush your cheeks as it divides and rejoins behind you. Blessed ones, whole ones, you where the heart begins, you are the bow that shoots the arrow, and you are the target. Fear not the pain. Let its weight fall back into the earth, for heavy are the mountains, heavy the seas. The trees you planted in childhood have grown too heavy. You cannot bring them along give yourselves to the air to what you cannot hold. We go to the depths in an embodied way and then we bring it out into the world offering our gifts to the world. That's so it's and we'll say more about that in the afternoon. But it's really we could, if that's helpful we can think of those four phases first connecting with the body and maybe we do this each day connect with the body explore in more depth the body, connect it with the heart and the, the mind. Thirdly, in an embodied way, go further into the depths, and then fourth, bring it out into the world. So that can be a, a little bit of a map.
2: Yeah.
1: I also just want to say from the map that, that my work is based on, uh, it's called Embracing Embodiment, and then I the women's circles I lead are related to this, and I actually am starting a year-long program based on exactly this. Uh, through body meditation and dance, really cultivating that grounded, embodied. Because as Donald was saying, it's not ever a box you check. It's an ongoing living process and aliveness that unfolds over time. And we're getting such a lovely, rich taste of it today.
0: If we take a few questions, um, I'm aware of the time. We're we're Mm -hmm. going a little into our meditation time, but let me me take these because there's energy here. Um, Please, yeah. And I'll repeat the question.
2: Yeah. It, it's not a question as much as a, a request. Yeah. Um, Wilke is my favorite poet, and I would love to hear that poem in the original German. Mm. And I imagine you saying you studied four
0: years in Germany. <laughs> or one year. <laughs> <laughs> I write canchon-deutsch, yeah. <laughs> what? Just to activate that part of our brains. Oh, yeah. You know, I don't have the German with me. But... Maybe we can, we could um, during the walking period. I can get it online. Oh, mm. so, couldn't have done that twenty years ago, <laughs> right? But yeah, thank you. Yes, it is beautiful to. And do you speak German? Um, Listen. So little, I can't bring it
1: out. I I study. It's, uh,
0: it's German is my heritage, and I studied many years, but it's. It's more to hear it than feel almost like the resonance in the body. That's what you were getting at, right? Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, please, Marianna.
1: I hate to do this to you, but I would love to receive that by
0: email, that poem by email, if you would. It's so gorgeous. Yeah, it's, it's quite something. Thank you so much. What I, maybe what I can do is uh, post it, and if you want to copy it, you That's could do that. That's it. another way. Okay. Yeah. That's good. OK, mm-hmm. great. Thank you. Yeah, it's something. Um, please, Larissa.
2: Anything to say about this? But I was thinking about the arrow story. Yeah. Um, The first arrow and how it affects the second arrow to be shot. Yeah. So it depends on where it hits the body. Like if you've Mm -hmm. been shot there before. Yeah. How deep it goes. Mm Yeah. And yeah, I'm not sure. In those times, where you're shot really deeply in a place that's very sensitive, like what
0: you can do to prevent the second arrow? Yeah, it's a beautiful question. It's about, um, there's a lot of variability in how the uh, first arrow comes to one, or how one's shot by the first arrow. And one way to think about it is there, you know, in terms of uh, uh, how easy is it for us to be able to be with the first arrow without having it automatically trigger the second arrow. And there's a lot, of, one model might be there are a lot of different degrees of difficulty, One's one way of talking about it. And someone who's shot uh, by an arrow, that's maybe a high degree of difficulty, meaning maybe someone was shot by an arrow there in the past, there's a lot of conditioning around it, there's fear around it, maybe very hard to avoid the um getting shot by the second arrow or having the second arrow get shot right and so and there generally um so that generally that uh, that it's helpful to with compassion recognize that where there is a maybe a lot of previous pain it might be very hard to avoid that we can just see that in ourselves right or some of it also has to do with being startled. You know, something if we had enough warning, we could actually be pretty good. But bam, bam, there it is, right? You're in a vulnerable place and someone just says something really mean and the sec- voila, the, sec- French, the sec- <laughs> second, French, arrow. second arrow. And so what we can do is we train with lower degrees of difficulty. That, and we get better at it, and gradually we bring out that capacity to higher degrees of difficulty. So, you can read stories of great Tibetan meditators being in the Chinese prisons with incredible first arrows. And they, that was, um, seems to, for a lot of them, actually have to be workable. And they came out of that, sometimes they said, without hostility, right? right? But that was a very high level of practice, right? And very high degree of difficulty, so we have to pra- keep practicing, you know, and, and and keep on building our capacity to be with what's difficult, yeah. Maybe last last two, and then I'm gonna gonna move on. So we um, we keep on somewhat on our schedule. Thank you for the arrow story. Yeah. So um,
2: when I was a child, my first arrow, um, a little girl pointed to me and said that I was I, um, I bombed Pearl Harbor, is what she said. Oh yeah. Wow. <laughs> And and so I didn't have a second arrow or any tools at that time. But yep. I was very confused about the hate that was yep. coming towards me. And so, uh, you know, so as I got older, I was contemplating, wow, this arrow actually inspired me to want to create peace in the world. Right. So I'm, I'm a photographer, and my work is around peace, and that's for world peace, and all kinds of things. Yeah. And so it actually inspired me to help Help in a different way right. to, for that arrow. So I turned it into like a rubber arrow. <laughs> and it just kind of bounced off, but it really, you know, sunk in there. And, and, and I'm thankful, you know, but it hurt at the time. But so I, al- I also went home that day and I said, "Man, I look, I look so Chinese. I'm the most Chinese-looking one in my family. So I was hating myself for that because oh, yeah. I didn't blend in. And um, and then now I realize, well, because I am Asian, it actually helps me with my message so I can stand out and share my message in a better way. Yeah.
0: So. Yeah, there's so there's a lot there and uh, um, so much in, in your example. Thank you for being willing to, to share that you know, just in, in terms of, uh, yeah, in terms of being stereotyped. And of course, the stereotype was based in so much ignorance, right, multiple levels of ignorance. Yeah, and, and uh, about being uh, Japanese. <laughs> and a fighter pilot. <laughs> 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 yeah,
1: and, and a little, and a
0: little <laughs> person. <laughs> 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 I just thought we could have fun and
2: play ball.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and, and the way that in your, in your experience, mm-hmm. yeah, I think you're pointing to the way that in your, in, when there is wisdom and compassion present, the presence of the first arrow... Can be a resource, can be uh, can when we have the those capacities, it actually deepens us in compassion and wisdom, to actually be with that first arrow. Mm-hmm. Right? So that's that is really really clear from your story, and that was uh, remarkable, really, that that could happen, right? Yeah. Okay. Maybe last one. Last one. Yes. Also about the two arrow. Campaign. Yeah.
1: I have noticed that sometimes within myself or another beginning of a practitioner would use the language of Buddhism yeah. to shoot the second arrow. Yeah. Yeah. You know, let's say someone fell, and they'd say, that person was not in the present, and it's their fault that they fell. Yeah,
0: yeah, that's yep. yeah, that's- yeah, yeah. so um, talking about using Buddhism or yeah. the jargon <laughs> of meditation, Um, as a way to shoot the second arrow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, When people shoot the second arrow, they can be extremely creative.
1: (laughs) Yes, you can use the jargon of embodiment to do the same thing. Oh, you're not embodied. It only happened because you're not in your body.
0: We can use the language judgmentally. Yeah, and that's actually a misuse of the concept of karma, in addition. So it's not only shooting the second arrow, but there is quite a bit of ignorance. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean... uh, Karma is, uh, is generally, the, not, to, not to do too much with it right now, <laughs> but it's generally about one's intention. And it's really not about, okay, this happened to you, therefore you had bad karma. You know, like when I was, in my book I have material on karma, when I was actually writing that material I had a friend staying at my house, and she went to the bathroom, and the bathroom got blocked up right on the day I was writing about karma, she said, oh, that's my karma. That the bathroom got, that the toilet got stuck.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yours or hers? <laughs> <laughs> my substance.
0: Uh, she said it was her karma. But I guess it was my karma too, according <laughs> uh, to her. And it's actually a misuse of the concept of karma, which is much more about intention. Karma is about is what I'm doing now going to continuous, continue me with this habit? intention furthers further intention, in other words. And, yeah, so it's, um, anything can be misused and put at the service of blaming, judging, one's own ignorance, and so forth. And, you know, we know from history that religion and spirituality have been misused at tremendous cost to uh, human beings, and not just the, the suffering, but also the disillusionment with there being anything valuable from those approaches, right? So it's, um, thank you. OK. Yeah, so I, I'm glad I brought in that teaching. And it's something to be um, remembered in being with our bodies. OK. So let's, um, let's go into our sitting practice.